This is John Martinka, and it's another episode of the Getting the Deal Done podcast series. And I am here with my good friend, Gregory Kofsky, with IBA Business Brokers in Bellevue, Washington. Gregory is the president and has been at it over 25 years of selling businesses. And you can see more about the firm at ibainc.com. Welcome, Gregory. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. So first question, you're a business broker. You're a little different than a lot of the others, intermediaries, brokers, whatever in town, uh, in that you only sell businesses. You don't do any consulting or exit planning in that. So tell us a little bit about your services. Certainly. As you're aware, John, there's there's two dominant business models in the mergers and acquisition business brokerage world. And one model, the one we employ, is very clean, which we get paid on performance at the completion of the transaction. And at IBA, it doesn't matter whether that transaction is six, seven, or eight figures. We represent a full spectrum of Main Street, lower middle market firms. And our model's always the same in that we are very selective on our projects because our business model doesn't work if we don't complete sales. And we sell 80 to 90% of the projects we take on usually within three to nine months of going to market. And a lot of that depends on our acumen in correctly pricing the business and the ability to create an environment of full disclosure, employing best practice, and being a sales organization to get parties to yes. So that's the IBA business model. The the other business model in the industry which there are very honorable firms that do that, is they get paid a retainer or administrative fee along the way to completion. And in theory, both should charge the business owner about the same to sell their business if the deal is completed. Um, But if the deal is not completed, then there are hard costs for the owner of the business um, for trusting someone to complete a sale and an exit goal that didn't deliver. You mentioned your particular on the companies that you will take to market, which everybody should be. Uh, But besides the profitability I mean, and the company's not making any money, that's hard to sell. What causes you to pass on deals that maybe other people would take? Good question. So three things will generally make us pass on a deal. And you, you touch on one, the business model's not working. The, the second one is this is a very close, short-term relationship. You need to have good communication 
a alignment of goals with your client. So if we do not believe it's a good match, we may pass on a business. And then the final thing, which I think is the key to success in selling a business, is agreement on the price of the business. And one thing that we emphasize with our clients is you actually have to sell a business four times. The easiest one to sell is the buyer because they have emotion. But if you get a buyer to say, yes, I want to buy this company, then what are they going to do? They're going to hand the financials and other information to their CFO or their CPA, and it needs to get an endorsement from them. So if you've priced it incorrectly, it can fail at that level. The next one is they're going to hand it to their attorney to look at the deal. And if the allocation of risk is inappropriate in the deal, their attorney may reject it because they view it as too much liability risk. And then the fourth sale, which the basic you know, axiom is he who has the gold makes the rules, if you can't sell a deal to a bank or investors, then you can't get the deal done. And I think you would agree, and I'd welcome your comment. You know, based on historical financials and pricing, the probability of a bank financing it before you even make the ask. That's right. I I don't think I've ever had a client uh, maybe in my first couple years, but I don't think I've ever had a client I can think of not get a bank to finance a deal we brought to them. Exactly. I mean, you and I, I mean, I at our firm in a non-pandemic world, we could be wined and dined every day of the week by banks because they want to finance our deal flow because they are priced right and we do a quality job. Uh, my guess is you're contacted regularly by banks asking, do you have any buyers that need financing? Yep, sure do. So as we talked about those reasons why you might not take on a listing, and you talk about profitability and agreeing on price, do you look at more than the numbers? And I ask that because you know from my newsletters and our discussions, I'm big on the non-financial factors of business as well as the numbers, you know, customers, employees, management, suppliers. Uh, do you get involved with that? Do you educate your client on why it might not sell for what they think because of, say, you got a 50% customer? We do. We We look at a number of metrics in our assessment of value. And you're right. Um, customer concentration can impact it. Um, centralization of executive management, if you have no middle management structure, can affect the value. And then market conditions, competition, um, 
trends in the industry, supplier relationships. You know, right now, if you're having trouble getting product to sell because it's manufactured in Asia, that's, you know, a challenge to your business model and it should impact valuation. You may have willing and able buyers, um, but you don't have product to sell. I mean, I remember a deal we worked on together was related to a hot tub and spa dealership. And I was recently talking with one of the sellers in that deal and the buyer you represented, who I understand is doing well, one of the reasons he's done very well in the COVID world is strategically he stocked up on units early and, and placed orders for production before there were supply issues, which gave them the ability to satisfy demand with the big home improvement boost that's occurred in 2020 and probably will continue in 21. Well, you're right. And it's not just China because his situation, and by the way, Rob's podcast will be going out around the 15th or so of the month. And he's got the same issue as Brian Quint with AquaQuip that if you order a hot tub at the end of 2020 and into now 2021, you're going to get it probably in 2022. And one of the reasons being California has put a lot of factories on 25% capacity. That's where a lot of hot tubs are made. So. Exactly. No, I would encourage people to listen to that podcast. Um, Rob, the, the buyer of that business, Black Pine Spas is, um, he has a fascinating background of entrepreneurship, you know, in the medical into mm-hmm. consumer goods like hot tubs. Yeah. So Gregory, uh, you know, as I just mentioned where we are in early 2021, and what I've seen with the market is since COVID, and I think we're in for a, a right 2021 for the buy-sell world, is that a, a lot of buyers are more cautious than ever. Uh, they'll, you know, it, it's the old, I think it was uh, Lionel Haynes who wrote a book and said, uh, you have to be a hunter, not a trapper. And a lot of them have just said recently, oh, I just want to be a trapper. If it falls in my lap, and if what I like, I'll buy it, but I'm not going to be as aggressive as if there was no COVID. Um, but yet we're seeing, a, I've seen a lot of good businesses on the market. Whereas nine months ago, I thought we'd be seeing a lot of crappy businesses wanting to sell. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think there are winners and losers in any economy. So we are blessed as a firm in that a small percentage of what we do is retail and hospitality, less than 20% of our transactions. So that has been a devastated segment of the economy, though we have completed transactions in 2020 in that space. And 
have several in escrow pending sale for Q1. But conversely, there have been segments of the economy that have surged. Um, I'm working on the sale of a boat dealership that should close in January. And 2020 was one of their best years ever because what's better way to social distance in the Puget Sound than on a boat? And people weren't traveling. And so dollars were allocated into that industry and the marine industry did well. But another thing driving businesses, which is very predictable, which I think will continue for about the next decade, is father time doesn't stop. And the baby boomer population is aging. And at some point, you need to get off the bike. And I think the value of life in people's eyes has been increased in the last year. And they say, you know, I've I've done well as an entrepreneur. I'm going to change some of my priorities away from additional wealth that maybe it's, I would love to do a camping trip with my grandkids while I can. And I'm going to work to have freedom next summer like I haven't had in years. You're right. That is a huge factor. It's been predicted for a long time. We've never seen the tidal wave a lot of people thought we would see. We've seen a bubble recently, but that is going to keep accelerating because there's still a disproportionate share of businesses owned by people late 50s to mid 70s or so. So I got one more question for you and then you, if you want to share anything else, but let's talk about valuation and deal structures since we've hit COVID. I've seen some changes, uh, more earnouts, or if it's an SBA loan, uh, clawback situations. Uh, what about you? I, I like earnouts and clawbacks, and we really try to negotiate win-win transactions. I mean, IBA has been around for 46 years, and one of our flows of clients are buyers who have bought from us, thought they were treated fairly, and now want to sell their business. So we work really hard to create win-win businesses. We want the seller to get a fair price and the buyer to be successful. So I very much like earnouts because what I believe is going to happen is as COVID recedes, the vaccine gets distributed, life returns, there's going to be an organic return of businesses. And I actually think the businesses that survived this hurricane are probably going to do very well for a number of years because weaker competition has failed. and market share has grown. And as the market grows, the pie grows, and we're not going to see, I believe, many new business startups in the short term. And so it could be a very good period for entrepreneurship 
And an earnout or a clawback is a wonderful way to address that because I believe a buyer has no problem paying for what they buy if it was because of the handoff from the seller. And I'll give you an example. Right now we're representing a printing company. And in 2019, they did over $4 million in revenue. In 2020, they're in the low $2 million range. It really is nothing about their business model. They grew in revenue 17, 18, and 19. 20, they fell off. Well, the customers who buy their products will return. It's not, to me, a matter of if, it's when. So how do you address that in a deal? Well, you have a variable element of the purchase price that if 21 or 22, let's say, gets back to $4 million, I don't think, and welcome your opinion, I don't think that should just be a gift to the buyer because it really had very little to do with the buyer. I agree. And it also gives the protection to the buyer that if those customers don't come back or don't come back soon, uh, they're, they're protected. And I think back many years ago to a, a deal where there wasn't customer concentration as much as industry concentration, the Great Recession hit in 2008, 2009, and there was a erosion clause, we'll call it, that if certain things happened, that changed the deal. And it took a, you know, it was a big hit for about three years. So you're right that when these things we can't control happen, those kind of deal structures can benefit both sides. Well, I think one thing you and I always emphasize, and we've done many deals together over the years, is you got to get the the parties to stand up virtually, mentally from the table and walk to the other side and look at the deal from that side. Why are they concerned? What are their issues? And, you know, I think it's true of our society in general. I don't think people listen to each other enough. I agree. And it's one reason I started suggesting uh, a couple of years ago that the buyer and the seller, once we're in the due diligence and heading toward closing stage, have regular communication. Even if there's nothing to talk about, you have your weekly call or meeting. I, I agree. I mean, in a corporate world, what do we call that? We call it management by walking around. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, not an end goal, but, you know, if you stay in contact with the people you're working with, then when you need something, when there's a stress point, there's a relationship, there's rapport. Yep. I agree. So any final thoughts, Gregory? Um, I would maybe return just briefly to our business model 
and valuation in that one thing that makes IBA unique is we offer a complimentary business valuation to potential clients where we will give them a professional opinion of the market value of the business. And that serves two purposes. The first is it lets a seller evaluate IBA without any contractual or financial obligation. Are we a good fit for them in terms of knowledge, experience, ability? On our side, it lets us determine, is this a project we want? Is this a person we want to work with? Are they realistic on value? So if you know any of the audience in the Pacific Northwest is curious about the value of their business. With our business model, we are honored to value it for you because our goal is to build rapport. And honestly, we've been around 46 years. I've been doing this 28. We don't care whether you want to sell in 21, 22, or 25. We just would like to have the possibility of being on your team when you decide you want to move forward. You bring up an interesting point. And by the way, I do know a number of other firms who will also give a market assessment of value for no charge. And I do know firms who charge or try to charge for evaluation. And I have said in speaking engagements a few times or, or more, I think it's unethical for someone who wants to sell your business to charge you for evaluation. So I think we're in agreement on that. Uh, again, yeah, no, I, it's, it's actually a, a real emotional point for me on that because, and again, I think there are honorable people who use both business models. I can't emphasize that enough, but I have also seen national seminar companies and others who for five figures will give people an answer they want to hear on the valuation and have no accountability to deliver that price. And it's just a buyer beware on the paid evaluation side from my perspective. Yeah, and it's well into five figures for those firms. And a quick story as we finish, a good friend of mine in Los Angeles, many, many years ago, went to one of those firms, said, you don't have anyone that takes your listings that you don't want to handle nationally here in LA. Can I do it? He then told me his toughest job was telling the business owner, your company won't sell for anywhere close to what it says in this report. Exactly. I mean, we're meeting tomorrow in Portland with a very nice business that the owner has wasted significant time and paid significant money for no results, and they're they're ready to migrate to another firm. But it's it's hard to disengage when you've written that check, because you're basically saying that was 
a bad purchase. And we all have trouble acknowledging we make bad decisions in life. Yep. So let me finish by, by, uh, once again, Gregory Kofsky, president of IBA in Bellevue. You can reach him at Gregory at IBAinc.com or 425-454-3052. Gregory, this was a fascinating discussion. I enjoyed our time together and look forward to seeing you uh, in the near future. Thank you, John. Happy New Year. Same to you.